Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. When Tibet was invaded by China in the 1950s, many Tibetans left to find a new home in India. Over the years, this population has grown, forming a Tibetan government in exile, which has never been formally integrated into India. While this has allowed the Tibetans to retain their culture and religion, it's added challenges when it comes to citizenship. Here to discuss citizenship and Tibetans living in India is Associate Professor Sonika Gupta from the China Studies Center of the Indian Institute of Technology, Madras. Thank you for joining me, Sonika. Happy to be here. Sonika is also a contributing author to the new policy brief, re- to the new policy brief released from La Trobe, Asia looking at issues of citizenship, geopolitics, and the environment of the Himalayas. You can find out more about it at latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia. Sonika, tell me about the Tibetans living in India. Where are they found and what is the size of the community there? The Tibetan community in India has grown over time in the last 60 years from the initial numbers that came in with the Dalai Lama in 1959. The Maximum uh, number of people came in the early 60s. But over time, this population has uh, increased in terms of, as well as people being born in exile. Mm. In the 1960s, the uh, government of India had decided, in consultation with the Dalai Lama, to set up self-contained settlements uh, for the Tibetans to live in. This was a specific request from the Dalai Lama because he did not want the Tibetans to be scattered among the Indian population and therefore not be able to preserve their own culture and their own identity. Initially, there were two camps in the northeast of India. The largest settlement of Tibetans in India is actually in the state of Karnataka. And it's not as popularly perceived that Tibetans live only in the Himalayan regions of India. Mm. They live in uh, 11 different states of India. Population sizes in the settlements vary. For example, in Arunachal, where only a few hundred people live, to Bailakope, which is the largest, in Karnataka. Most of these settlements have, if they are large enough in size, schools, monasteries, and their own health facilities. And those are all administered by the government in exile? Initially, as state governments made land available Hmm. for uh, these settlements, the district administrations were naturally responsible for that. But over time, the Indian government has handed over the administrative responsibility for uh, governing these um, settlements to the Central Tibetan Administration, which earlier used to be called the Tibetan government in exile. And the population has been declining. There's been less people coming across from Tibet, but also just the community itself is declining in number as the diaspora spreads throughout India and the rest of the world, I suppose. Yes, that's fair. So there is a census held every 10 years for the Tibetans in India by the CTA. And the last one was held in 2009. According to that, there are about approximately 1,27,000 Tibetans in India. But it is expected that if there is a census today, when census figures for this decade are released, you will find a marked change. Unconfirmed reports put the population as low as 70,000. But there is no official confirmation for this. And there are two main reasons for this. One is out-migration from India, and the other is a low birth rate within the community. And can you expand a bit on the official status of the community living in exile? How much power does the Tibetan government in exile have? And what is the arrangement that they have with 
India? Because I, I can't imagine that India is entirely comfortable with this situation. So this is policy innovation. That's one way to put it, I think. Yeah. And I think it's a very creative uh, innovation uh, of the Indian government and uh, the Dalai Lama's government in consultation with each other. So when the Dalai Lama set up his government in 1960, at that point in time, there was an understanding that this government is supposed to be a continuation of the government that existed in Lhasa. Mm. And politically, that is pretty much still the case. However, the nature of that government has undergone a lot of change over these last 60 years. For example, today, there is a democratically elected Tibetan parliament in exile, which did not exist at that point in time. There was an assembly of Tibetan people's deputies, but it was not democratically elected. Mm. So there has been a transformational uh, shift in the nature of the government. In terms of the relationship with the Indian government, the relationship in terms of how administratively settlements are managed is not a difficult relationship because administratively the CTA has the first responsibility, but it has to be within the laws of India. Mm -hmm. The CTA is not recognized as a government by any country in the world. That's why they also changed the name from the Tibetan government in exile to the Central Tibetan Authority, which is less politically loaded. Again, the CTA has been very innovative, finding ways of making itself as politically non-controversial to allow the Indian government to be more and more facilitating. So, for example, the one thing that they have done is they have incorporated major departments of the CTA as NGOs in India. Mm. So, the Indian government does not recognize the CTA as a government. In fact, India recognizes Tibet as a part of China. Therefore, it does not contravene the official Indian policy on Tibet. Dalai Lama is an honored guest in India. And the people who came with the Dalai Lama, they are all foreigners in India as far as legal status goes. And India is not a signatory to the UN Convention on Refugees. They don't have legal refugee status. Yeah, They are recognized as foreigners in India who have to periodically renew their registration to live in India. That seems a really inconvenient way to live. There's Tibetans who have lived in India their entire life and they've got to go through that every... How frequently is it? It used to be six months. Every six months. Six months to a year. Now it's less frequent and... Well, there is a provision that since 2012, there is a provision that if you have lived in uh, India for longer than 20 years, mm. then you can uh, renew your registration uh, certificate. It's called the RC. You can renew your RC for 20 years. Okay. And it can be done online. Many people do it, but mm. there are many people who choose not to do it. It wouldn't surprise me if there's a lot of people who go, this just means that I do not belong in the place where I live or the place that I've always thought of as, as home, almost like they could return to Tibet tomorrow. Becoming Indian, it has very diverse opinion within the Tibetan exile community. Mm. There are many people who choose, for example, not even to take advantage of the five-year renewal of the RCA. I met one of the activists in Dharmasala and he said, no, I want to renew my RCA every six months or every one year. It reminds me that I am a refugee and it keeps my activism alive. But it is, you're right, it's a very inconvenient way to live because uh, renewing the RC is not an easy process in terms of administrative functioning of the Indian bureaucracy. It's a very othering process. It's, it can be also very alienating. Mm. It's like any other bureaucratic process in India, mm -hmm. I would say. But there are many people who have taken citizenship. The issue of citizenship within the CTA is a very contentious issue. Taking citizenship 
in countries outside of South Asia, outside of Nepal, Bhutan and India. That's not very controversial. So, for example, Tibetans taking citizenship in Australia, it doesn't cause as much um, tensions within the community or in Europe or in the United States. The reason why the issue of taking citizenship in India is contentious is because India has the largest number of Tibetan refugees in the world. There is a dedicated infrastructure in terms of schools, monasteries, cultural uh, institutions that the CTA oversees. And these are not just welfare delivering uh, institutions. They knit the community together as a community in terms of its cultural and political identity. Now, to live in a settlement, you have to be stateless. You cannot be a citizen of India. So it's trying to hold on to that yes. infrastructure that they had before. Not just the infrastructure. I think mm. it's it's a much deeper question of identity. Culture and religion and, and yeah. every, everything like that would diffuse amongst the And Indian, the struggle. Yeah, yeah. And the struggle itself. So many people who do take citizenship in other countries, they don't agree with this point of view at all. If taking citizenship in other countries is going to dilute a person's uh, activism, then it should work the same way for people taking citizenship in anywhere in the world. Yeah. Right? But this is a very politically contentious issue and it causes a lot of trauma within the community in terms of the moralistic judging that people go through when they take citizenship. Tibetans who have lived in India, who are born in India, a second, possibly a third generation, they have a number of issues related to statelessness. And many of them would get resolved if they had citizenship. One of the major ones is buying property. They cannot buy property at all. Okay, officially, there is a process under the Reserve Bank of India Mm. that you can approach to buy property. But the process is so cumbersome that effectively it means that you cannot legally buy property. It's not people don't have property. I mean, people have, if they've lived in a country for more than 60 years and they have prospered economically, they do have the wherewithal, the economic wherewithal to actually invest in property, to build up businesses and to build up commercial establishments. But it cannot be done legally. There is a lot of uh, uncertainty uh, regarding what will happen to the future of that investment. If people have these concerns, the natural next step to say, why not take citizenship? Does it restrict employment as well, not having citizenship? Yes, it does. Uh, However, um, there was a new policy that was uh, created in consultation with the Central Tibetan Administration in 2014. There, the scope of the jobs that the Tibetans can apply and work in has been expanded. For example, around 2014, they were allowed into nursing jobs. Mm. Before that, uh, business licenses to run small businesses, etc. But it has been a fairly incremental process. What's their status when it comes to voting then? Do they have a say in the elections when they roll around? Okay, so in terms of voting, first of all, Tibetans are too few in number to actually count as an effective voting bank for any political party in India. Okay. The issue of voting is actually not linked in the way the bureaucratic processes work to the issue of citizenship. This issue of uh, voting rights for Tibetans, it came in the media glare in 2014 before the 2014 Indian general elections because the election commission gave a directive saying that Tibetans who were born in India are eligible voters. Mm. Now, there's a distinction between saying eligible voters and saying that they have established citizenship. When we went to observe the process of how voting cards are made 
the process does not require anything except for establishing proof of age or residence. And most people have that. So many Tibetans, especially ones who live in urban areas, they have voting cards and have had voting cards, especially since the 1990s. So what happened after they got the voting cards in 2014? Did they exercise their new right to vote? So I can tell you about the assembly constituency of Kangra in Himachal Pradesh. Yeah. Many people registered to get voting rights there. Uh, there are about uh, 13 to 14,000 Tibetans in Dharamshala. Only about uh, 1,450 approximately applied to get voting cards. And that's a very small number. There is no official estimate of how many voted because you cannot track that. But by talking to people, it looks like it was not more than 100 people who actually voted. Mm. That should give us an indication of why people are getting voting cards. That's not dominantly actually to vote. It was reported in the media after the elections that people who had uh, registered for voting cards had been asked by the district administration to either surrender their voting cards or to surrender their RC because they cannot hold both at the same time. This process should tell us the kind of liminality that they live in in India. Many people did decide to surrender their voting cards. Very few surrendered their RCs mm. because the RC is a much more uh, enduring symbol of Tibetan identity and has benefits through the CTA attached to it. The advantages of having a voting card are, as of now, fairly dubious, except for maybe better mobility within India and to Nepal. Let's wade into that. How, how restricted are they to travel? I mean, especially internationally. There has been a couple of cases where Tibetans successfully applied for Indian passports, but it took going through the court system to argue right. their case. Right. What sort of challenges does that provide for them? So two things. One is uh, movement in and out of the settlements has been a fairly cumbersome process, which is now being uh, simplified by the Indian government. The other is travel in and out of India. Indians uh, have a passport to travel, which Tibetans cannot access unless they take citizenship. So they have been issued with something called an IC, Identity Certificate. They can travel abroad with it, but rarely is travel on an IC trouble-free. Mm. On Indian airports, Tibetans face the maximum challenges with the IC. Not on airports in other countries at that much. But the IC is not recognized by many countries. So to apply for a visa is a very cumbersome process. To apply for the IC itself is a very cumbersome process. So that is one of the reasons why people would want to apply for Indian citizenship, to get an Indian passport on which they can travel, travel to meet their family, travel to meet friends for professional opportunities. Now, the IC regime is something which uh, is very counterintuitive in terms of keeping Tibetans in India and keeping them stateless. Many people that I have spoken to have said that if the IC regime was easier, I have, would have no need to apply for a passport. It is quite a telling situation that both the CTA and the Indian government have not progressed that far to make IC much more valid to travel on. There have been some movement, especially in the last two years, but for it to filter down to the immigration officer at the airport, I think it's going to take a very, very long time. So what is the perception of Tibetans who have taken Indian citizenship then amongst the community? One thing which people recognize dominantly is that it is not uh, wholly unexpected to take citizenship in India. Mm. There is a lot of moral sanction from the CTA about 
taking citizenship. I mean, the CTA's official position is we neither encourage nor discourage. But it is very clear that the political position is they stand to lose in terms of the Tibetan population in India, in terms of the support that they get internationally, in terms of the cohesion of the Tibetan struggle, if more and more people take citizenship. Mm. So if you do that, you are effectively turning your back? I would say that is a view of people who have had a very strong political commitment to statelessness or of the CTA as the hegemonic view. But I find that the lived reality is far more complex. So you, it's not as if people who have citizenship and who don't have citizenship have nothing in common. Mm. This is a very personal issue. It's not a generational issue. It's not an issue of political commitment because people take citizenship for very different reasons. My understanding is that this issue is driven more by personal relationship with statelessness rather than a political understanding of the whole issue here. Exile is a moral choice. It's presented as a moral choice by the CTA. Not everybody within the community might agree with it, but that's the dominant political position. And you hear of this very frequently that Tibetans haven't left uh, Tibet to be rehabilitated elsewhere. They have left Tibet, they are in exile because the Dalai Lama is in exile. And as long as the Dalai Lama is in exile and conditions in Tibet are not conducive for his return, how can Tibetans accept the option of return without the kind of changes that they are asking for in Tibet? Does the existence of the CTA and the presence of a Tibetan community in exile create problems in the relationship between China and India at all? Of course, it has always played a role in uh, India-China relations. But depending on the state of the bilateral relationship, the issue of uh, Tibetans being in India becomes less or more important. Okay. Because there is still the border dispute which is unresolved, it remains an issue that is not set aside in terms of the totality of India-China relations. But uh, I think it has been a fairly successful policy of the Indian government to have the Dalai Lama in India and to say that he is our honored guest and to say that he is not here for political purposes, Mm. to make provision for the Tibetan settlements where Tibetans can live, they can preserve their language, they can preserve uh, their religious practice, they can preserve their art, teach Tibetan history to Tibetan children in Tibetan, and uh, keep the Tibetan struggle alive while taking the policy stand that none of this is actually political. At the same time, will India put the political interests of the Dalai Lama and of the Tibetans uh, above its own political interests? No, I don't think that that's ever going to happen. Well, thank you for your time today, Sonika. My pleasure. You have been listening to Asia Rising. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts. You can follow Latrobe Asia on Twitter. We are at Latrobe Asia. You can follow Sonika Gupta on Twitter. She is at Sonika Gupta IIT. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.